A very good morning to my brothers and sisters in Christ and also to the friends that I guess that have joined us this morning, uh, both here in person as well as those who are online. We are so glad that you have chosen the better part of the day to worship God with us and uh, to be able to hear a message from His Word. We are currently on the list, series of lessons on the theme, Evangelism Made Personal. And uh, last week, our uh, brother Amos shared with us about our mission, which is to bring the gospel to the lost. Today, the topic that I've been assigned is, why aren't more Christians involved in the work of the Lord? Okay, so with that, we are looking at the emphasis on evangelism, and also to look at it in a general perspective, as in why we are not more involved in the work of God's work. I think when we consider about the work of the Lord, we have to consider first, what is the threat to God's work? What is the greatest threat to the work of the Lord? Well, we see that uh, in uh, Israel's conquest of Canaan, none of their enemies could prevent their advancement. They tried their best. They tried to deter them. They tried to form alliances to fight against them, but they never succeeded. But we see that the only times that the Israelites faltered was due to problems from within. Consider how sin within themselves caused their defeat. For instance, we see that when they were sent out to spy on the promised land, 10 of the faithless spies discouraged the people. As a result, a whole generation was lost. They could not enter the promised land. We see that when Joshua's time, when they were conquering, none of the enemies could stop them. They were unstoppable. Only sin within the camp stopped them. The sin of Achan, who took off the accursed thing, stopped them from being able to gain the victory of over eye until the sin was removed then they could continue their conquest. And likewise, the greatest threat to the first century church was not external, but internal. We see that they faced opposition from the government, from the religious authorities, but none of them could stop the Christians from assembling. But we see that discouragement came from within. There was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, okay, who uh, pretended to give all they had when they actually lied to the Holy Spirit. They kept back one of the proceeds, but they wanted the glory. The sin of hypocrisy threatened to divide the church. We also see that there was conflict from within. The neglect of the Christian widows threatened the unity of the church. Well, even today, we see that we also face discouragement when we do the work of the Lord. Of course, there is discouragement from outside the church. When we do the work of the Lord, we are met with apathy of the lost. Friends that you try to bring the gospel to, they tell us, I'm not interested. Don't tell me about the Bible. I'm not a religious person. And there is also opposition from false teachers, persecution even from them. But we see that the greater discouragement, once again, comes not from outside of the church, but from within the church. When there is lack of love between brethren, when there is conflict, it deters the war of the Lord. When there is a lack of involvement of brethren, again, it discourages brethren. And so it's to the last point that we look at, the lack of involvement, how it discourages the war of the Lord, and why Christians, we need to be involved in the war of the Lord. Along the lines of this point, I would like for us to look at Numbers 32, verse 6 to verse uh, 7. Numbers chapter 32, verse 6 to verse 7. Over here, we see that what happened was that uh, at this point in time, the Israel, they conquered the east of the uh, promised land. They conquered Gilead and Bashan. And in this context, we see that there were two and a half tribes, of, uh, two and a half tribes which is the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh who asked to be given the eastern side of the land. And Moses misunderstood their intention. Moses thought that, oh, these brethren, they wanted to lie down, to relax, to be at ease, while the other brethren go and fight their own wars. They wanted to relax and take a break and not to be involved. And so that caused Moses to be very upset. We look at Numbers 32, verse 6 and 7. 
Moses said to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war, and shall you sit here? It was a rebuke to them. Are you going to let your brothers fight the war? You yourself sit at ease. And he asked them, verse 7, Wherefore discourage ye the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord had given them? Notice Moses told them that by doing so, you will discourage the brethren. In fact, he gave them an example of how the faithless spies discouraged the brethren, and he warned them not to fall into the same trap of discouraging the brethren. Of course, the tribes actually clarified their intention. They did, not want, they did not intend to just relax and sit back. But they were actually thinking of settling down their families, their wives, their children, their cattle, and then they said, we will go along with our brethren to fight the war. And Moses blessed them because that was the right thing to do. From this passage, what we understand is that when brethren are not involved in God's work, it can discourage others who are actively serving as well. Well, we may be very familiar with the Pareto Principle, which states that 80% of consequences come from 20% of the cause. Well, this also means that 20% of the consequences come from 80% of the cause. And so what this means is that when we apply it to church work, a lot of times you see that 20% will be the one doing 80% of the work. The minority doing the majority of the work. Whereas the majority will be doing the minority of the work. So when you have 80% doing 20%, this also means that there are a lot of freeloaders, uh, people who are not doing the work of the church. And so we see that this is the thing we want to address this morning. Why aren't more Christians involved in the work of the Lord? And in this lesson, we have to look at three reasons why Christians aren't involved, even though they know that it is important in the, to be involved in the work of the Lord. The first thing we want to consider is the inadequacy of conversion. Well, some Christians, they are not involved in the work of the Lord because they simply don't care about responsibilities. Tell me the blessings, tell me what I will get, but don't talk to me about responsibilities. They have not been truly converted. You know, responsibility is sometimes a dirty word eh, that people don't like to think about. They don't like to take on, they don't like to receive. Okay. Uh, my wife has a colleague at work eh, that uh, has worked over 30 years, eh, uh, then she's still a junior nurse. Eh. Okay, so in fact, I sometimes joke with my wife that she's the most senior junior. Eh. Got 30 over years, but she's more senior than others, but not promoted. Well, it wasn't because of lack of opportunities. It wasn't because people sidelined her. The reason is because she turned down the pro promotion. I was quite puzzled at first. I said, why would people turn down promotion? Don't people want more pay? Well, my wife explained to me, it's because she don't want responsibilities. If you promote to become a, a senior staff nurse, that means that you have more responsibilities. It means that you have to be able to uh, take on more roles, to be able to take charge of awards. You cannot say that I want to go home on time. You have to hand over to the next staff. You cannot simply say, I want to take leave. You have to plot accordingly to see whether there's enough staffing needs. As a junior, you can say, oh, my chief is up, I go home, hand it over to the rest. I take leave when I want, I want to take MC. Okay. In fact, the state, the state staff uh, can even forecast MC. Uh. You know, people forecast leave, uh, she forecast MC. I have 15 more days. Uh. This means that how many more I have to take before I can clear them all. Okay. You can do that when you're a junior. But we have responsibilities, you simply can't. And sometimes people also don't like responsibilities. You Sure, people who want to get married, want to start a family, but they forgot about the responsibilities that come with it. And that's why sometimes marriage gets into trouble. Okay? People get married because they want to have a family, uh, family blessings of a family, the privileges of a family, but they don't want the responsibilities. They live like they are still singles, going out with their friends late at night. Okay? When they come home, they don't want to take care of the housework, they don't want to take care of the kids, they just want to watch TV. Well, these are people who don't want responsibilities. And that's why sometimes people say marriage is not for the immature. And I think likewise, it is the same for Christianity. 
Christianity is not for the immature as well, people who don't want responsibilities. And for people who don't care about responsibilities, well, they may know the truth, they may believe the truth, but they skip a step. They skip the step of repentance. They jump straight to confessing Jesus as Son of God and they get baptized. But they forgot that there is also repentance at work. The thing is that the converted obey the gospel. But not all who obey the gospel are converted. What it means is that those who are converted, those who are pricked in their hearts, like the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, they obey the gospel. They asked Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were, they were pricked, they were converted, and so they obey the gospel. But the thing is that not everyone who obey the gospel are converted. Like I mentioned, some miss the step of repentance. Well, let's consider an example. In Acts chapter 18, or rather Acts chapter 8, verse 18 to verse 23, you look at the example of Simon the sorcerer. Acts chapter 8, we look first at verse that uh, let me see verse thirteen uh. okay. Actually, verse thirteen tells us that Simon the sorcerer he believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. Of course, we can't look into man's heart uh. We don't know what was the motive of Simon for obeying the gospel, but it seems to hint to us here that he wasn't obeying the gospel for the right reason. In fact, he was following Philip but he was amazed at the miracles. He wasn't amazed at the teaching of God's word. He was more amazed at the miracles. In fact, subsequently, we see that he fell into sin. It seemed that his heart was not right. Today, we have a word called simony, okay, which means you try to buy religious blessings. It comes from the word Simon. Simony, Simon the sorcerer. And look at what happened to him in verse 18. When Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. This was the guy that earlier was following Philip to see the miracles he done. He wondered, he was amazed because these were true miracles unlike the tricks that he was using to deceive people. And now he saw that the apostles, they had, they could have the gift. And he wanted to buy this gift so that he can pass on the power. And then he offered money. But Peter said to him in verse 20, Your money perish with you because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Notice the Bible tells us this man's heart was not right. And he asked him to repent of this wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. His mind, his thinking was not correct as well. And in verse 23, Peter says, I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. This was a man who was a bitter man. Why so? Perhaps it's because uh, Philip took away his popularity. At one time, people were entranced when enchanted by his uh, so-called miracles, the magic trick that he used. But now, Philip took away all his followers. And so this was a bitter man who was in the gall of iniquity. And according to the early church fathers, some of the writings, writings by Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, uh, they actually say that this man subsequently apostatized. In fact, he was uh, thought to be the founder of the Gnosticism, who promoted the Gnostic stock that there were hidden knowledge that they had to know. So not surprising from a man who probably wasn't truly converted to obey with, to, to begin with. So what we mean that the converted obey the gospel, but not all that obey the gospel are converted. We see in the case that even though Simon the sorcerer believed, but he was not truly converted. The question then is, what is the right kind of conversion? How can we be converted in the right way? Well, firstly, to be converted in the right way means to, be, to experience godly sorrow for past sins. It means that there is a change in our feeling. Our emotions must be pricked. You see, the 3,000 3,000 that obeyed the gospel on the day of Pentecost, their hearts were pricked by God's word. 
And 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 tells us that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. So notice that before repentance takes place, the heart must be touched. The heart must be touched. He must feel sorry for the past sins. It's not just being sorry, but the sorrow that led him to do the right thing. Subsequently, there must be repentance. That means a change in the thinking. In fact, the word repentance is from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's mind for the better. So you are pricking your heart, and then the way of life, the way of thinking changes. Your perspective of life must change. And that is what happens to the parable of the two sons. Remember, there was one son. The father said to the son, the first son, Son, go work today in my vineyard. The son said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. Notice this son changed his mind. At first he said, I don't want to work. But perhaps he was thinking back about the things that the father had done for me, how, but done for him, how good the father was to him. And now he said that I've changed my mind. I want to work for my father. I want to do what my father wants. He was overcome by guilt, emotion, the godly sorrow, and then he changed his mind. Of course, the other son, the second son says, I will go, but he didn't went. This was a change of mind, but not for the better, but for worse. And so when we talk about repentance, we're talking about changing your thinking for the better, to think the right way. And thirdly, we see that there is also a change in conduct, a change in doing things. It means to turn from idolatry to serving God. It's a turning of a way of life. As Paul tells the Thessalonians about how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So repentance must take place. When it takes place, it means that it's godly sorrow from us to change our way of thinking and then to change our way of life. Instead of serving idols, we are now serving God. When we talk about idols, we are not just talking about the graven images, the wooden images that people worship. The Chinese that worship their ancestors worship the idols. Not just that. We are talking also about idols in the heart. Things that we put above God. It could be the money, materialism, being our idol. It could be our work, being our idol, that prevents us from putting God first. It can even be our families that stop us from serving God. All these things, we must turn from them and to put God first. To serve God with all our heart. And conversion is so important. Conversion is so necessary. Because without the right conversion that leads us to be involved in God's work, the faith that we have is a dead faith. Remember earlier I said that there are some people whose uh, conversion stops at belief. Uh. They hear, they believe, but there is no repentance. Well, this kind of belief, James tells us that if you have not works, uh, this faith is dead being alone. So conversion is crucial because without the conversion, the faith you have, I believe in God, I believe in the promises of God. James says, this is just a dead faith. A faith that cannot save. So we see that we need to be converted. And some are not involved in God's work because they obey the gospel, but they never consider about the cause of discipleship. They never consider about the responsibilities that they must take on. But after you become converted, the question then is, how do we stay motivated in the work of the Lord? Well, according to the self-determination theory, okay, this theory talks about how we can have motivation. The motivation must come from internal and not external. And so one of the factors that drive motivation is actually autonomy. Okay. Autonomy is the feeling that one has choice and willingly endorses one's behaviour. So when one is converted, he wants to serve willingly. It's not because he's being compelled to do so. He wants to do it willingly because he sees the need, the benefits of doing so. You know, if you force a person to serve, uh, 
the the the, the person won't have a good, good heart. Uh, okay. That's why some people they serve for a while, they give up. Okay. Uh, because there is no willingness to do so. But when there's a willingness to do so, it helps to drive us to continue in the good works and not to give up, even when we meet with discouragement. Let me give you an example of exercise. Okay. You know, a lot of times uh, people go into the army. Okay, the, the meals we go through a round of message. Two years in the army or two and a half in older, older times. Okay. And you become very fit, right? Uh, why is that so? Because there's external pressure. Okay. External pressure in the form of pressure from your sergeant officers. They punish you, they, 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 they force you to do to exercise. They say you must wake up at this time, do your 5DX. I can still remember waking up at 5.30am to run 2km, no joke. Uh, but you are forced to do so. Okay. They give you reward. Uh, okay. uh, when you pass your IPPT, you get, you, rather, when you get go for IPPT, you get $400. Uh, okay. Imagine when you are a recruit. Uh, uh, last time I recruit Terry was only 200 plus. Uh, you get $400, wow, that's like a lot of money. Uh. That's two times of your recruit pay. Uh. Now I think recruit higher. Uh. Then of course you say, oh, I want to get the money. Okay, I better pass. Okay. And of course, there's punishment as well. Uh. Okay. If you don't pass, you stay back for remedial training. Everybody book out for the weekend, you stay in camp. That's external pressure. Okay. So because of that, you train hard, you become very fit. But guess what? When you come for army, the external pressure is disturbed. What will happen? If the, pre- the motivation does not come from within, it's not because you want to do it. Then a lot of time people become uh, unfit already. Lah. Okay, that's why I see after they come from army, reserve it, you see your friend, hey, wow, I put on so much weight. Lah. Okay, my friend will say that of me. Lah. Okay. But because there's so much more motivation. Okay. Yes, you still get the, maybe you get the pressure from your family members, but the pressure is not as great as from within the army. Okay. You still get the incentive $400, but whereas last time $400 was two times of your pay, lah, you go out to the working world. Maybe for some, lah, $400 is not even 10% of your pay. The incentive is not so strong. How about punishment? Uh, not much punishment, uh, except that there's RT. Uh, that's also a strong deterrent. But maybe some people say, it uh, doesn't matter, uh, I just go there, waste my time, uh, slow walk around, meet my friends, then come back home. There is, the punishment is not so strong anymore. So without that external motivation, if there's no internal motivation, then people won't want to continue doing it. And that's why it's so important to have this sense of autonomy, to motivate ourselves. I think one of the things that we enjoy here inside is Agape Lunch. Quite successful, uh, I would say. A lot of sisters, they are very willing to serve, willing to, 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 uh, to, to, to make food, contribute food for the group of brethren. Why is that so? Well, you see autonomy taking place. Okay? People are free to choose whether they want to contribute or not to contribute. They can choose what dish they want to contribute. Okay? Imagine if the rules change now. Uh, everybody must contribute and we assign who to bring what. Uh. I think that a lot of people will give up uh, because you feel that you are forced to do so, not because you want to do so. Okay? It's the same as like children. Okay? A lot of them, if they uh, you are forced them to do their homework, Okay. After a while, when the pressure is not there, they stop doing it. But if they do it because they want to excel, they want to do their best, then if you don't pressure them, they will still do it. So motivation is very important to be driven by autonomy. And we see that in the first century church. They were so willing to serve, and that's why they were continuing doing it. Okay. Look with me to Acts 2.42. Acts okay. 2.42 says, And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Notice the Bible says, they continue steadfastly. Uh. Was there pressure upon them? Did the apostles say that you must have fellowship? You must study the doctrine? You must pray? Well, it's not. It's they themselves that want to do it. So when they want to do it, they were truly converted. The sense of autonomy keeps them going. In fact, they were so willing to do it, uh, that if you go down to verse 46, it says that they continue daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. How willing were they? They were willing so much that they want to be there every day. Uh, 
Every day in the morning, probably they'll be there at the, at the temple to come together to worship God, to have devotion together. After that, they were going from house to house to eat in each person's house. Maybe they were volunteering. Hey, come my house, today breakfast. Uh, your house for lunch, your house for dinner. That was how much they wanted to do it. And so when there's autonomy, when people want to do it of their own heart, then the service will be very happy, the, zealous, the, the service will be very zealous. And that's what we see in the first century church. So one of the hindrances why we do not serve, perhaps it could be a lack of, uh, inadequacy of conversion. The second reason why people are not involved in the war of the church, perhaps is because of misconception of the church. There are some Christians who are not involved, even though they care. Unlike the first group, the first group doesn't care about responsibilities. This group care very much responsibility. But the thing is that they don't know it's their responsibility also. You know, some, some brethren uh, have a good heart. They care about the work of the church. They say, why is the work? Why is the church not doing evangelism? Why is the church not doing benevolence? Why do people seek the elders never visit them? Why are the laws that the preachers never preach to them? Well, they are very good supervisors, uh, managers, uh, telling people what they should do, what they should do. But the thing is that sometimes they have a misconception. They didn't realize that they also have a responsibility to be involved as well. So for some of these people, they view the church like a society. Okay. I place my membership in a society. But what does a society do? The society serves their needs. Okay. So they come to church in order for their needs to be served. Not to serve, but for to be served. Okay. For example, some may come to church because of social needs. Or oh, I want to have friends, I want to have companionship, I want to have people that love me. So they come to church. Some who come to church because of financial needs. Oh, I come to this church because the church supports me, they take care of me, they contribute to my welfare. Well, we see that when these things are taken away, when, we, when the, these things are not being fulfilled, what happens? Sometimes people fall away because they come to the church with the wrong reason, with the wrong idea of the church. On the other hand, there are some who have the wrong idea. They view the church as an agency. What do I mean by that? You know, why is an agency? You think about job agency, what, are, what do they do? You go to a job agency, the agency will find a job for you. You want to find a helper, you go to a maid agency, the maid agency will find a maid for you. So when people want to come to a church as an agency, what do they do? They want to find someone to do the work of the church. They go to the agency, the church finds someone to do their work for them. They are looking for people to serve by proxy. That means I don't serve, I come to the church so that the church can do my duty on my behalf. They think that salvation can be by proxy as well. People can serve on my behalf. Again, there is a wrong idea of the church because we are in the church to serve, not to be served, and not for others to do serving for us. And so for this group of people, the heads need to be properly educated. The thing is, the saved are in the church, but not all who are in the church are saved. Okay. When, the, when on the day of Pentecost, the 3,000 souls were added to the church, we see that the Bible says, and uh, uh, verse 2.47 says, praising God and having favour with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. So the saved are being added to the church. But the fact of the matter is, not everyone in the church will be saved. We don't get saved by association. Okay. Sometimes people think that God on the day of judgment will judge by congregation. This congregation, on average, uh, average, I mean that you look at everybody's good works. Okay, I score them. Average church has 55 points passing mark. Everybody saved, even though some has less. You think of it in the idea. And so when you have the idea, what do you do? I want to go to a church that is active. This church is not so active. Uh, I'm scared that the church will be lost. Uh, so I better don't be here. I go to a church that is more active. Maybe they will be saved and by association, I can be saved. Well, is that what the Bible teaches? Let's look at Matthew 25, verse 41 to 46. 
we see that the Bible teaches about individual accountability. Matthew 25, verse 41 to verse 46. Okay? There were those on the right hand that were saved. These were the people who were zealous, who were serving God. But verse 41, we see that what happened to those on the left hand? Jesus says, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, a thirst, stranger, naked, sick, in prison, and did not minister unto you? And Jesus shall answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And this shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Notice that the salvation is based on their individual works. There are works that the church has involved, but Christ will judge everyone individually. Have we done our duty to seek and to save the lost? Have we done our duty to serve the brethren? And so here we see that saved people will be in the church. We cannot find salvation outside the church. But not everyone in the church will be saved. There are those on the day of judgment where they have not done as God has commanded. They will not obtain the salvation that they desire. And so what then is the right concept of the church? Well, there are three kind of responsibilities that I want to talk about that we can see in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. If you chapter 4 verse 11, we see that there is what we call functional responsibility. Okay? Responsibilities that you have as a result of the role you take on, as a result of the office that you take on. For instance, Ephesians 4 11 tells us a few roles. He gave some to be apostles and some prophets. Of course, we know that apostles and prophets, they are the first century officers. Okay? Uh, of apostles, they are there to witness for Christ. They bear witness, they, begin to, uh, they are there to uh, teach and preach the word of God, minister to God's word. There are some prophets as well, Prophets who foretell the message from God. Okay? These are the time of miraculous age. Today, we don't have apostles, we no longer have prophets. The time of miracles has ceased, as 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 to 10 tells us. But today, we still have other people who hold other, other roles, other responsibilities to play. We have some who are evangelists. Our evangelists are also preachers. Like myself, I'm an evangelist, I'm a preacher. I preach God's word. When there's a loss, I have a duty. No matter in season or season, I have to be ready to teach them. Then there are those who are pastors, who are elders, whose duty are to oversee the church. They have this duty because of the role that they play. And there are teachers also. Teachers, they are commanded to do as they teach. That's why James says, be not many teachers, because you shall receive the greater condemnation. And uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 21, Paul talks about how teachers, well, they are to do what they teach. Now that teaches a man not to steal, does thou steal. When you teach, you have to practice it. Otherwise, there will be condemnation that befalls teachers. And so these are roles that in the church you play. And so they have responsibilities, they have duties. There are also deacons as well, who are in charge of various ministries. They have the responsibility in that ministry. Not only that, there is also congregational responsibility. Okay. At the congregation, there are duties that we have to fulfill as a church. Okay. And verse 12 says, for the perfecting of the saints. Or the New King James Version says, for the equipping of the saints. Okay. So the church has the duty to equip the saints, to train them, to conduct training programs, to help them to serve for the work of the ministry. So the church has to come together to take care of say, various ministry. And of course, in the church, we talk about evangelism, edification, and benevolence as the work of the church. And to edify the body of Christ. So these are congregational responsibilities. You have to do as a congregation. Okay? So, for example, worship. Okay? You have to worship as a congregation on the Lord's day. Every Sunday, we have to come together as a church. I cannot say that, oh, I want to do it by myself. I want to do it alone at home. Well, that is not congregational worship. Worship means we must assemble. 
you will look at the book of 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, many times the word come together appears there. The church must come together. It is a congregational responsibility. You can't do it by yourself. Okay. Another responsibility of the church could be church discipline. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the church must come together, they gather together, and to exercise church discipline. Okay. Again, here we see that it's a congregational responsibility. You cannot say that, oh, uh, this is the responsibility of elders. Elders withdraw fellowship from a brother who is teaching false doctrine. Well, I don't want to be part of it. It's the, it's, the, it's the problem with the person, not my problem. Well, we see that we can't do that because it's a congregational responsibility. When the church exercises discipline, all the members are bound to honour the church discipline to fulfil that duty. So we talk about functional responsibility, congregational responsibility, and then there's also personal responsibility. Duties that each and every one of us have a duty to do so. If you look at Ephesians 4 verse 16, it talks about how the whole body that is fully joined together and compacted by which every joint supplier. So he's talking about a body that is fully formed, that is united. Every body part is in its place, very well fitted together. But notice it says, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Notice that every part must work effectively. So what does it mean? What is this body? Ephesians 1, 22-23 tells us that the church is the body of Christ and Christians are members of that body according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so each of us are a part in the body. And this verse says that every part of the body must work together effectively. So this tells us that every member has a role to play in the church. And when everybody does, does in part, what happens? You will make increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Notice the church will grow. You will be edified, you will increase in love only if every brethren, every member does his part. So again, there are responsibilities that all of us are involved in. There is the duty of evangelism. We cannot say that it is the duty of the church. The church come out with their programs, their plans. The church do their part. All of us are given a great commission. We have a duty to practice evangelism, to bring the gospel to those around us. There is also the duty of benevolence as well, isn't it? We cannot say, oh, the church does good work. So for me, I close my eyes wherever I see people need help. I don't want to help because it's their duty to do. No, it's a personal responsibility as well. So you see, in the church, there are responsibilities. Functional responsibilities, elders, deacons, preachers, uh, teachers, all of their responsibilities. There's congregational responsibility that we come together to serve. But there's also individual responsibility that all of us need to be involved in. It's important for us to have the right concept of the church that will lead us to be involved in God's work. Because without the right concept, what will happen? We will become disorderly. Okay. When people do not work, that's when disorderliness comes in. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 11, we hear that there are some which work among you disorderly, not working at all, but are busybodies. You know, the critics of the church are often those that are not actively working. That's why they have time, they have energy to find fault. I remember that in 4C's college, uh, one of my wife instructors told me, uh, give us the advice. He says, the best way to silence complainers in the church, in the church is to keep them busy. I think that's very true. Uh. Okay. When people are busy, they are serving, they don't have time to make complaints, they don't have time to criticize, they don't have time to fight for with others. But oftentimes, when we are not actively involved in the world of church, what happens? Or we begin to think that, why is this brother not doing his work? Why is this sister doing the work but not doing a good job? We find fault because we are not involved. So we need to be involved so that we will not become one of the disorderly people that Paul speaks of. And so brethren, once again we ask the question, after I have the right concept of the church, how then can I stay motivated? Okay. And uh, related to this is the idea of relatedness, okay, which is the second driver of motivation I want to talk about. 
Okay. First, you have autonomous, you do it willingly. And then there must be a sense of relatedness. Relatedness means the need to feel connected, a sense of belongingness with others, working together as a team. And that will help you to stay motivated. Going back to the example of exercise, okay. again, I think all of us will find that it's easier to exercise when you do it in a group, right? Rather than to do it alone. Okay. Uh, I used to be more active in running uh, okay, uh, when I was staying at my parents' house. Okay. Why is that so? Because I have a good running buddy, Kevin, uh, so all of you might know him. He stayed at Serangoon. So oftentimes, after the uh, last time we used to have evening service at Limapin, I would text him, hey, I'm the way back. Uh, me, you, at 8.30, we run together. Okay. And it's very helpful because I'm a very bad runner and very bad motivator. I'm not a motivated runner. So when I meet Gavin, Gavin will say, come on, uh, a bit more, finishing soon already. He'll motivate me. I feel like giving up. He tell me, a bit more, a bit more. Come run a bit faster. He'll motivate me. Okay. But nowadays, when I'm at my own home, uh, I run a bit. Uh, wow, see how so far to go. Uh. Uh, the, the, the marketplace is just nearby. Uh. If you run along the, the, the you know, the McPherson, there's one marketplace, the circular market, there's a canal there. I run along there, I think, wow, the, the, the food very tempting. Uh. Okay, then the food has a stronger attraction. I give up. So, but we realize that when there is a group working together, with few relatedness, we will want to do it. Okay. In the same manner, I think you apply to church work as well, isn't it? Uh, those of us who have been to the church camp, don't we feel very energized, very connected, we want to be more involved. Why? Because of sense of relatedness. All of us spend time together, and that's why I enjoy church camp. It makes you feel uplifted. it makes you want to serve more. And we see that the early church, once again, they were very related, they were very close. You look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44. It says here, all that believe were together, the self togetherness, they had all things common. They share things, ah, okay? and that's kind of relatedness helps them to keep going. All of them have the same mind, the same focus, encouraging one another. Okay? So the second hindrance to God's work is sometimes we do have the right concept of the church. But having the right concept of the church means that we must see each other as brothers and sisters, people that we are close to. We have to be able to feel vulnerable in one another, not to feel guarded or not to be able to ostracize one another, but to come together to serve God to be able to encourage one another. And the third factor, that why more Christians are not involved in the work of the church, sometimes it's a lack of commitment. Even though these Christians, they may care about God's work, they know that it's their responsibility to be part of the work. But the thing is that they don't want responsibilities. They say that, I know, and I, I know that I need to be involved, and uh, I, they want the church to be active. But the thing is that they don't want responsibilities. And so sometimes, this lack of commitment can manifest itself in a lot of excuses. Sometimes I give the excuses that, oh, I'm not involved because other people are also not involved. Other people are not doing it, so I don't want to be involved. Well, consider when we come to marriage, uh, can we use that uh, same logic? Uh? Can I say that, oh, I don't want to be involved, I don't want to uh, have commitment to my wife, okay? because my wife never do their part. Uh. Uh, they never do their part in the marriage. They never help me to do the housework, never take care of me, so I don't want to be committed anymore. Well, we see that you cannot do that. Uh. A commitment is that when you make your marriage vows, you'll, you'll be there together till death do us part. What do you say? In sorrow and in, uh, in, in, in health and in sickness, in, uh, in, oh, I, I didn't, in happiness, in sorrow and happiness, okay, uh, time good and bad, uh. my, my marriage was all different, uh, that's why I don't really remember that, okay, but you get the idea, good times, bad times, you're still committed, right, so when we make a commitment to follow God, it's the same thing, good times, bad times, we will stay committed to God as well, and sometimes we also use the excuse of why we're not involved, others stumble me, again, can I say that, when my wife and me have an argument, I don't want to do my, my duties because I argue with you. You can't do that because it's a duty, it's a responsibility. So in the same way, we need to be committed. No matter times are good, times are bad, happy, not happy, we still serve. Sometimes people don't want the commitment. They have that commitment. They just want the blessings. They want to avoid the punishment, 
but the hands are not properly directed. They are committed in other things, but just not to the work of the church. And so the thing is, the committed are religious, but not all the religious are committed. Think about that. Those who are committed, if you are committed to God's work, you'll definitely be religious. You'll be there every Sunday, you'll be there to serve in various capacities. But the thing is that not all religious are committed. Huh? You know, sometimes people in the world will say, hey, you are very religious. Huh? Every Sunday you go to church, huh? to the world is religious. Huh? But a person can be religious but not committed. Huh? So Sunday they come to church, but they are not involved in the world of church at all. Weekdays they become like the world. You see no difference between them. Okay? They are religious, but they are not committed. Then what then is the right catalyst for commitment? How can we be committed? I think no matter what area of thing you're talking about, be it in the church, be it in the family, be it at work, commitment must be driven by love. Okay. Firstly, love for God. We want to serve because we love God. First John 5 verse 3 says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. God commanded us. God tells us what to do. Okay. And we do it because we love God. That's why we want to serve. And when we love God, this also means that we love the brethren by extension. Because the Bible says that if you do not love your brethren whom you can see, how can you love God whom you do not see? So when we love God, this also means that we must love the brethren. And that's why Paul tells the brethren to by love, serve one another. Serve one another by love. Okay? When you love your brethren, naturally you want to serve them. Right? Your family members is the same thing. If you love your family member, you want to serve them. Uh, Juna has been attending a midweek quite recently uh, uh, since she got baptized. And uh, last, last Thursday, uh, the past Thursday, I saw that her dad brought her to the church uh, uh, at the start. After that, uh, after the service, uh, the dad was the one who came to fetch her again. I said, wow, your dad's so, so on. Uh, uh, come here, bring you to church, then go back home. Then after that, come back and bring you again. Well, that's love, isn't it? Because you love your family members, you want to serve them. Okay. Mark also, I would say they're very responsible. Uh, I see that sometimes the, the daughter needs to go to gym. You'll send them there. And then sometimes you'll come back again for church activities all these days. Or also very on. Uh, because he loved God, he loved the church. That's why he wants to serve. And so when you love God, you love the brethren, naturally you will love to serve as well. Okay? As uh, Psalm 40 verse 7, a messianic psalm, talking about Jesus, where he says, Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book is written of me. And Jesus says, I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. We know that Jesus loved God. He loved the brethren, and because of that, Jesus loved to serve as well. So Jesus says, I delight to do thy will. Today, when we come to worship God, we do it out of love. Uh, ah, I'm looking forward to worship. Or do I say, wow, see, I waste my time two hours. After that, then I can go out and play. Does it come as a chore? If there's a love, it won't be a chore anymore. And again, we have brethren in the church who love to serve. Okay. Uh, every morning, we have very nice breakfast. Uh, uh, thanks to our Auntie Irene and Uncle Boteng. Why? Because of the love. Uh. Okay. In fact, I think Auntie Irene, every time I say thank you, say, don't thank me. Lah. I love to do it. Lah. Okay. They say, I love to cook. Well, that's not really love to cook. Lah. I love to cook. Some people love to cook, but they may not want to cook for the church. The thing is, they love to serve. Okay, I think that's more like it. They love God. They love the brethren. They see the family at the church. And so, they love to serve. They love to see people happy, enjoying fellowship. The love for service then comes in. So we see that it's important to have the right catalyst for service. Okay. The right catalyst that makes us committed by love. Okay. Why? Because without the right catalyst, uh, we'll grow weary. Uh, okay. If you are not doing this because of your love for others, uh, okay, very soon you'll feel very tired. Uh, okay. Sometimes people give up serving after three months, six months, a year. Why? Because the love is not there. Doing out of obligation. But if you do it because you love to do so, you continue doing it. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6.9, Let us not be weary. Let us not grow tired in well-doing. 
for a new season, we shall reap if we faint not. Okay? Don't grow tired. We grow tired if we don't do it out of love. But we do it because we love to do so, we will continue to do that. And going back to our chart on self-determination theory, how to stay motivated? Okay? When we have the right catalyst motivated by love, okay? uh, we also need to have competence. Okay? Some many people love to serve, uh, but they don't have the ability. They give up because they're discouraged. Okay? So competence meaning that the experience of mastery and being effective in one's activity. So some people want to jump into stuff. I'm a new convert, but I want to preach already. Then they, they get very discouraged because they don't know how to go about it. Well, if you can't preach, maybe you can help to be an assistant teacher. Uh, if you want to share the gospel with others, we can't really teach them yet. We can help to sit in to assist with the teaching. Okay? So there are things that we can do. Yeah, do things that we are comfortable with. A small step at a time. Okay? If you want to run a marathon, uh, you don't stray away uh, from no exercising. Uh, suddenly you go and run a 42 kilometer. You will die. Uh, okay? You do gradual training. If you start, you run 5km, then build up to 10km, then 21km, then 42km. Gradual training. The lost law also is the same thing. Okay, if you have not been teaching, uh, suddenly you say that every month I have to teach, uh, well, I guarantee you, you'll feel very fired out. Uh. Okay. Start small, but gradually put yourself, build your endurance, build your stamina to do more and more. Okay. And the same thing when we talk about exercise. We are motivated to exercise when we do it incrementally, uh, rather than to do it over-exert ourselves. Uh. Uh, of course, every new year we set a resolution. Uh, so every new year I also set a resolution to exercise more. Uh, okay? uh, but this year exercise, uh, I make it very uh, manageable. Okay? In the past, after not running for a long time, uh, I decided I have to be active. Uh. I tell myself I have to run three times a day. Three times or three times a week. Uh. <laughs> three times a week. Okay? And I say I run two rounds around the McPherson Canal. Uh, I estimate that's about three kilometers. Uh. I say that, oh, that's 2.4. Uh. Three kilometers is just right about there. Three times a week. Uh. But I know after running one time, uh, I got a lot of body aches. Uh. I said, ah, yeah, that's too hard. Uh. Maybe I give up. Uh. Okay. So this year, I set myself a uh, simpler. One time a week and around one round, 1.5 km. Okay. So far, keeping to it, uh, manageable. Okay. So do it small, do it gradually. I think it's the same way we do the lost work as well. Okay. Start small, start somewhere. You'll find that you cannot commit every week to coming to protecting. You can do it once a month okay. or once every two months. Just come. Just be involved in any way that you can. And we are glad that a lot of brethren have stepped up to help in various areas, teaching Bible classes, serving in various responsibilities. Just make yourself helpful. Serve in the Lord's kingdom in whatever areas that we can. Okay? And so, we see that in the, in the first century church as well, the early Christians, they were serving according to their capacity. You look at Acts chapter 2 verse 45, it says that they sold their possession, they sold their goods, they gave to every man as every man had need. Notice they gave within their capability. They give what they have, their possession and their goods. Okay. Imagine if they had to give more than that. Uh, they had to take loan from the bank to give to others. Uh, well, that, that becomes very stressful. Uh, they may not be able to maintain. But they give within their ability. So same thing within the church. We give of our time, our money, our energy within our capability as well. And so brethren, in this morning's lesson, we have considered three reasons why more Christians are involved in the work of the Lord. How we can be motivated to work. Okay. Firstly, we talk about inadequacy of conversion. We see that the right conversion has to be prompted by godly sorrow that leads us to repentance and demonstrated in the right conduct for God. Okay. Of course, related to this is the idea to stay motivated, we need to have autonomy. Do it willingly, not because people force you, but do it because we want to. We talk about a second thing, why people do want to serve, because of the misconception of the church. Okay. They think that the church is to serve them to do the work on their behalf. But we realize that there is functional responsibility, the result of the roles we play, Congregational responsibility and the church what we need to do and also personal responsibility as well. Okay. And so to have the right idea of the church ties in also with the idea of relatedness. 
Okay. We need to feel as a family, encourage one another, do things together, help one another along the way. And thirdly, the lack of commitment. Okay. We see that to overcome this, we need to have the love for God, love for brethren, which ultimately result in love for serving. Okay. And again, this uh, ties with the idea of competence. Uh, you want to serve, but serve within our own capability. You know, the Bible always tells us that the church is the body of Christ. Each of us are members of the body. One of us could be the eye, one of us could be the hand, one of us can be the leg. Well, you know what? Without a functioning leg, uh, sometimes you can still walk around by limping, right? Okay. But if the leg is functioning well, what happens? The body can sprint. Uh. Okay. So sometimes with the idea that, yeah, never mind, uh, I'm not involved, uh, the, work will, the church will still function well without me. Well, the church can function, can still carry on the work with, rest, with members. Some members carry on other people's responsibilities. But consider this. The church can be more involved in more good works if all of us do our fair share of work. Isn't that so? Okay. Just look at this man. He's on crutches. He can probably get through the finishing line very slowly. Okay. But imagine if you have two legs. Huh? You can sprint to the finishing line. You can do more. You can run faster. Okay. Imagine if I have a hand. Let's say my hand, this hand, huh, can carry uh, 1.5 kg. Okay. I carry 1 kg. People don't want to carry their weight. I have to carry 2 kg. Okay. I will get burned out, right? But imagine if I carry 1 kg. This hand also carry 1 kg. But this hand can carry another 0.5 kg. What's the total output now? 2.5 kg. I can do more rather than just to do 2 kg. Okay. So we see that the idea is here that everybody be involved. If everybody is involved, then others can be freed up to do up more work for the church. So brethren, our Lord has given every one of us, everyone has gifts. Huh? No one can say that I have no gift, I have no talent. Okay. First Peter 4 verse 10 tells us that anyone has received the gift, huh? let us minister. Everyone has gift. In the parable of the talent, we see that there is one who is given five talents, one given two talents, one is given one talent. We be the five talent servant. God has blessed us richly. We use the five talents to gain more talents, to serve God in more areas. We be the two talent man. Even though I'm not as gifted as the five talent man, but I still do my part, do my proportional share. Remember, we talk about competence, doing what I can to serve. Or will I be the one talent man? Giving excuses. Lord, you are a hard man. Uh. I don't want your talent to go to waste. So I bury it in the ground. Well, did the master say to him, you wicked and slothful servant. Uh. There is no excuse on the day of judgment. I cannot give God excuses why I didn't serve. God will judge me. Okay. But if I serve him, God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And to the friends that are with us, that have uh, joined us for worship uh, for quite a number of weeks, and even those who are first time here with us, we thank you for taking time to be with us. Well, God has given you his word to tell you how to be saved. As uh, Peter says in Acts 2.40, save yourself from this untoward generation. There are things that you need to do. Okay. Sometimes we think that, oh, we believe alone we are saved. Maybe I've been part of a denomination before, and I think that I believe in God, I know what to do, I'm saved. Well, the Bible tells us we need to do what it says to be saved. Not just believe. Don't be like the person that we talked about at the beginning. Stopping at believing and not doing the rest. Well, God has done His part, giving us His Son. Jesus shed His blood for us, and the Holy Spirit revealed the word. The Bible tells us what you need to do to be saved. Uh, this chart may be familiar to all of you. I always use it as my clothing chart. But I hope you are not down of hearing. But to continue to do what God tells us. To hear God's word. To believe the word of God. Not only that, you have to repent of your sins. Remember what I say about repentance? Godly sorrow. Pricking our heart. To change our mind. they demonstrated in the change of life. Okay. And then to confess our faith in Christ. And then to be baptized to wash away our sins. Have you done all this that God commanded? Of course, there is also the part to remain faithful. What would you do with the message this morning? Will you reject the message that you have heard? Will you be among those that believe, but you don't want to do the rest? 
I believe alone. I think I'm safe. But we neglect to do what God says. Or will we be among those who believe and strive to obey God's word in order to receive the forgiveness of sins? I hope this lesson will encourage us as we stand and sing the hymn of invitation and encouragement, which ties in with our, our theme for this year, Here Am I, Send Me. Individual responsibility that all of us be involved in the work of the church, particularly in the work of evangelism. Thank you. There is much to do, there's work on every hand. Heart the cry for help comes ringing through the land. Jesus calls for reapers, I must active be. What will thou, O Master, here am I, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, ready at thy bidding, Lord, send me. There's the plaintive cry of morning soul's distress. And the sigh of hearts who seek but find no rest. These should have my love and tender sympathy. Ready at thy bidding, here am I, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. Yeah.